That was probably one of the weakest thanks be to God that I've heard after that Old Testament reading. We had one of those a few weeks ago, too. The minor prophets have a way of doing that to us, don't they? And it sort of came out in the form of a question. Thanks be to God? It's one of those passages of Scripture that you're wondering to yourself, that's in the Bible? It, it makes us so uncomfortable. You know, we're, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, uh, about the people who, this is your first time in church and you're reading this passage of Scripture and thinking, oh, what kind of God is this? And, and it, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us nervous because, quite frankly, we don't really like that image of God. I think Christian Smith hit it on the nose when his survey a few years ago that said the survey of young people and in uh, North America. He said it came out that he said a lot of young people, and this would, I think it stretches beyond young people, but he said he described their faith as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's all about God makes us feel good. God is the counselor, the therapist, who keeps saying to us, oh, it's okay, you know, uh, so how does that make you feel? It's a very Rogerian God, I think. And, you know, how does that make you feel? And what do you think about that? And, and ultimately, he is a God who is not really in our lives until we need him. And then we invite him in and then we send him away when we're done. And this God, that, this God in our minds, what we really want is a God who is nice. And when we read a passage of scripture like Nahum, a prophecy like Nahum... It, it, it makes us wonder about this. It makes me wonder, why did I get into the minor prophets? What was I thinking? With This seemed like a good idea at the time. It's probably the most challenging of all 12, trying to figure out, why is this here and what is it saying to us? I think at its heart, it is telling us that God takes evil seriously. Because he knows far more than we do the consequences of evil. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this image of God and what God is saying here to the people of Assyria is because, quite frankly, we don't take evil near as seriously as God does. We don't really see how destructive it is. We don't really see how heinous it is. We don't really see what it does to, that it destroys people's lives. We don't really think it's all that serious. And God is saying to us, it's more serious than you can imagine. Now, the Assyrians are uh, a nation that is probably, uh, you know, they they are one of the world power at the time of this prophecy. And and I suspect that if Jonah were alive, he's about 100 years before this, Jonah would have stepped in and said, why couldn't I have that prophecy? Why couldn't I have been the one? I would have loved to have said that to them. It would have been awesome. I would have cherished the moment. I would have savored it to be able to tell the Assyrians this. And we'll get back to Jonah in a second. But the Assyrians are called by God to come to to Judah in this case. And they are God's agents of punishment of Judah because Judah has rejected God over and over and over again. And so he calls on Assyria to come and to be his punishment to them. The problem is Assyria decides that they're going to do more than punish. They want to annihilate. And Assyria becomes the nation that is the most heinous, inhumane, cruel, ruthless people in the ancient Near East. 
They have annals in the kings of all the things that they do to their opponents. And quite frankly, they're not things you can talk about in a setting like this. They turn your stomach. It's almost unimaginable, the things that they do to people in order to exert their power and their influence. And so people will fear them and they will conquer them. And God says to them, enough is enough. I am not going to let this kind of evil continue. And he acts against it. Now, I I think that, you know, we're tempted to think that God, that this is a different God from the one who spoke to Jonah. I mean, a hundred years before, God says to Jonah, go preach to them. And Jonah says, I don't want to go because if they repent, you're going to forgive them. God says, that's right. So then I don't want to go. And he ends up there anyway. They repent. God forgives them. And now a hundred years later, what's going on? God doesn't seem to be treating them the same way. And, and I think over the course of those hundred years, Assyria has decided they've thought about it. They know who God is. They've had experiences with God. And they have decided we don't want God. We're going to go our own way. We're going to, we're going to go back to our evil practices. And there's some, there's some sense that maybe they went back to even more evil than they were doing before. But it doesn't mean that God has changed. Right after, as this prophecy begins in verse 3, uh, the, the prophet says, um, I, am, I am the Lord who is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. It's a part of his nature. It's who he, how he describes himself way back in, to Moses when he gives him the law. I am slow to anger. That word, slow to anger, um, the Hebrew language often likes to take abstract ideas and, and describe them in concrete pictures. And so when you, if you read this in Hebrew, it doesn't actually say slow to anger. It says long of nose. And to be, to be angry is to be hot-nosed. And so what he's saying is, God has a long nose. It takes a long time for the, for the heat to get to the end of it. When I read that, I thought, no wonder I'm so patient. Now I get it. I see it now. God God is slow to anger. He is long of nose with people. He, He is patient and he is kind and he gives chance after chance after chance. I mean, look at the history of God and people. God says to Abraham, your people, your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years. Because I want to give the people of Canaan time to repent. God gives gives Pharaoh nine plagues to release his people until finally the angel of death comes. And of course, you talk about Israel in the wilderness. And they're whining and complaining and saying, we're better off in Egypt. And how many times I would have said, okay, that's it. But God is patient again and again and again and again. This is who God is. It's one of the things why I think coming to doing these prayer vigils and coming to pray and setting aside an hour to pray, it gives us an opportunity to really think about who God is in our busy life when we struggle to think about who God is. In that moment, just to step back and to contemplate, to ponder the nature of God. That he is long-suffering and patient and abounding in love. 
He loves to forgive. The prophet, he says through the prophet Ezekiel, do you think that I like punishing people? He says, no, I don't like punishing people. I want everyone to turn from their wicked ways and live. But some people choose not to. And there are consequences to that. But it's not even just about God addressing evil. It's something even deeper than that. It is really about God God addressing his purpose and design for the world. It took me a little while to see this. In fact, I sort of skimmed over it in most of my preparations. And it wasn't until, I think it it wasn't until... Tuesday or Wednesday of this week that it jumped out at me. It stared me right in the face. But you know how you look at things and you don't see them? It didn't hit me that the very first words out of the prophet's mouth are these. The Lord is a jealous God. Those are the very first words. The Lord is a jealous God. And it makes me wonder, because it's the first thing he says, if that isn't key to understanding everything that follows. Now, we have a problem with that because when we think of jealousy, we think of pettiness. We think of, we think of controlling someone. We think of smothering someone. We think of self-centeredness when we think about jealousy. And that's where this may not be the very best translation. The old King James Version used the word zealous, and that might be a better translation. Because this word means to be passionate about to be passionate enough about someone or something that you get involved and you feel emotion and you care. And that's what he's describing here. God is jealous. God is zealous for his people. He cares for his people. Dennis Kinlaw says this word is connected to marriage and the idea of marriage. And so when a couple comes and stands in front of the church... And, and they, they say their vows to each other and they give rings to each other. What they're really saying is from this moment on, it's you and me. And of all, my, all of our human relationships, this one is central. And we are jealous for this relationship. We will fight for this relationship. We will do everything in our power for this relationship. As I thought about that, I, I wondered if maybe, the, maybe some of the most important words in a wedding ceremony and probably the most neglected in a wedding ceremony are, are what the minister says after the giving away and the vows and the rings. And he stands in, and he says to the congregation, now that they have joined hands, have said their vows and have come together in the joining of hands and the giving of rings, I now pronounce to you that they are husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then... The very last sentence says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. And I think it's a, it's a word of caution to everybody standing there witnessing. Be careful. Be careful that you don't do anything or say anything that gets between this couple. Be careful. They're jealous for each other. Encourage that. And God is jealous for his people. Not because Israel is so special and everyone else isn't, 
But because God's plan for reaching the whole world, he tells Abraham, is that it will be through his chosen people. God calls Israel out of Egypt and says, you're my people. You will be be my followers and you will reflect my image so that everyone around you can see what I am like. And they too will want to come and be my people. You're my agents in this world. And that's why God protects his people, both Israel and the Old Testament, the church now. And God is jealous for his people, not because we're so special and everyone else isn't, but because we are agents of God's grace and healing and mercy and life and flourishing in the world. We're the ones who can tell people, this is what God is like. And the Assyrians are attempting to destroy Judah. The Assyrians who represent are symbolic of evil in this world are attempting to crush God's purposes for the world. To bring flourishing and life and joy and grace and peace, not just to a select group of people, but the whole world. And God is not going to let that happen. And that says to me that God's jealousy is really good news. It's the good news that God is greater than evil. And we can count on that. It strikes me once again, as it did Obadiah, that this is not a prophecy that we find in the scriptures of the Assyrians. This is a scripture we find in the the scriptures of the Israelites. And even though it's addressed to Nineveh, it is really a word for Israel. And the word for Israel is in a world in which evil seems to have all the control, in a world in which you feel crushed and stretched and pushed and pulled, I'm still the king. I'm in control. I've got this. It may be why God is so graphic in his language about about what he's going to do to Assyria because he wants all of Israel to know this is serious. He is serious. He is going to take care of it. They can trust him. And he becomes a place of refuge for them. It's interesting, in the middle of all of this talk of destruction and and violence that the end of verse 1 talks about the good news. Look, there on the mountains, the feet on one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. He's echoing the words of Isaiah 52 and other places in Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's the word of the angels to the shepherd. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And Jesus, beginning his ministry, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. Good news that God is greater than evil. That God is in control. And that we can trust him. But I also think that this good news is a warning. It's good news because God is giving his people, he's giving us direction. And he's saying to us, when I rescue you, when I remove this threat from you, don't act like Assyria. And it's always the temptation. Don't be people who are known for violence. 
Be people who are known for peace and love and grace and truth. And we talk about violence, of course, like me. Our first thought is that they say, well, I don't, I don't practice violence. You know, I don't get into fights with people. I don't pull guns on people. And it, I would suspect that is true. I think in the church, maybe even just in society in general by and large, our acts of violence are more often than not, not so much what we do physically to other people, but what we do emotionally to people. I think if you want to define violence, one of the ways to do that is, is violence is, is anything we do to hurt another person from any other perspective and with any other intent but love. Sometimes when we speak the truth, people feel hurt. And if we do it from a spirit of love because we care about them, I wouldn't call that violence. But if we do it for any other reason, I think I would. And I think that that in our culture, while we certainly see acts of violence all the time, maybe the most profound means of violence in our culture is our words. The words that cut us. Words that come from our mouths, words that we type on a keyboard, words that we punch into our phone. Words that damage people emotionally. If you're like me, when we were kids, we sang that little rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's one of the great lies that we perpetuate among children. Long after the bruises have healed, we remember those words. We live in those words and we agonize about those words. Our lives are torn apart by those words. We've all felt it. And if we're honest, I suspect we've all said it. And the call of of this prophecy is to remind us that the strategy that Assyria uses, the strategy of violence, is not what the kingdom is about. Our argument typically is, but we're right. We're on the right side. We have the truth, and that, and we are right. We do have the truth. We are on the right side. But quite frankly, so was Nineveh. They only showed up in Judah because God called them. He said, I'm going to use, I'm going to use Nineveh to, to wake up my people. But they became so enamored with being right that they believed they could do anything they wanted to do. And look where they end up. It's hard when we know we're right. It's hard not to to say the things we want to say in the way we want to say them. And it doesn't mean that we don't stand up for the truth. We are called to stand up for, for what we believe and to stand up for the truth. But we do it in a way that is instigated and motivated by a heart of love. Everything God does... Even what we read in this prophecy comes from God's heart of love.
That's a hard one for us to grasp. It's like we talked last week about, you know, when we get so enamored with the destination, when all we're thinking about is the destination, then we are just trying to get there as fast as we can. And it doesn't matter how we get there or who we trample to get there. The destination's all that matters. And we look back and we leave this pathway of carnage behind us. But the gospel calls us to be serious, not just about the destination, but the journey. The walking with God, moment by moment. When you're just thinking about the destination, it doesn't really matter how you treat people. You just got to get to the destination. But when you're, when you're walking with God, when the journey is what's, is what's motivating you, and the journey is where your focus is, then people matter. And every person that comes into our path, every person that God brings into our path is another person to love, another person to share Christ with. And when we're thinking about the journey, we pay attention to those people. We pay attention to not only our words, but how we say our words and the motivation of our heart for the words. I've heard people argue, well, when I read this kind of prophecy, this is what God does. I mean, God seems pretty violent in this prophecy. And if God can do it, we can do it. And of course, that doesn't take into consideration that he is righteous and we're not. He is holy and we are not. He is perfect love and we are not. In the scriptures, when God says in the scripture, vengeance is mine, that often gets interpreted as God is going to rake his vengeance upon you. And sometimes we even say that with a little bit of joy to people. But what he's really trying to say is, vengeance is mine, not yours. We don't have the right. Only God does. We leave the judgment to God. We leave the vengeance to God. And again, hear me. I'm not saying that we don't stand up for the truth. I'm not saying that we are not a presence of of God's uh, morality. It's not that we don't care about what people do or anything that happens in the world. In fact, we care more than anyone else because we know how destructive evil is. But we talk about it and we act on it from a heart of love and compassion and grace like God describes himself. This is, one of those, this is one of those places in Scripture that, quite frankly, when I get to the end of it, I'm not quite sure that I've answered all the questions. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. I still have questions. I assume you probably do too. And that bothers me because I want to have all the answers. I want to, have the bo- I want to put everything in the box, wrap it up, put the bow on top and say, okay, that's done. That's the God we create. And our God is too big for our boxes. Our God is too big for the ways in which we often confine him. But he does help us understand him, but we're always going to have questions. And at some point, 
we have to come to realize that we just aren't going to get all the answers to all the questions. And the call of the gospel is not figuring everything out. The call of the gospel ultimately is to trust God. To believe that he is who he says he is and nothing is more important, nothing's greater and we're going to trust him with everything we are. And as he reveals himself to us, we'll be open to that. But we believe God is who he says he is and we're going to trust him. And we know we can trust him because God's ultimate response to evil God's ultimate response to evil is the cross. The cross, Jesus takes the weight of the world, all of the all that evil can give and do upon himself. And he conquers. And he wins. He takes everything violence can do. And love wins. John Oswald says that sometimes we wrestle, it's hard for us to reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God, the fear of God. And often we think of them as mutually exclusive. But he says the only way you can really understand them is when they're together in tension. And then he says... I like to remind my classes over and over again of this, this little truth. If the God, the little God who lives under your bed says, I love you, it doesn't really mean that much. But if the holy, sovereign, righteous God who can fry us with just the glance of an eye, says, I love you. That can change your life. And my prayer is that we will see God in such a way that it changes our lives. Holy Father, we want to thank you that you are who you are. We want to embrace who you are, celebrate who you are, even when we don't understand all of it. Give us the ability to trust you more and more and to be the people you created us to be, agents of grace and healing and truth and love in a world that's desperate. Pray this through Christ. Amen.